they created quite an artificial message where it looked like they were cool to understand insights that were happening within their target market, but then the way that they packaged it and executed the storytelling came across very much as a fake brand effort. And it caught a lot of backlash, it caught a lot of heat, and eventually Pepsi pulled it. Hey guys, welcome back to the Matt Brown Show. This podcast is powered by Matt Brown Media, and I'm proud to bring you the stories of entrepreneurs who are hustling today's markets and creating great things in their own lives and in the world of business. Storytelling. It's one of the biggest buzzwords in business, and it's how savvy companies are satisfying the public's never-ending hunger for content. With compelling characters, relatable plots, and most importantly, authenticity, innovative storytellers are connecting with consumers, colleagues, and investors on an emotional level, something which will always distinguish your business from that of a competitor's. But as an entrepreneur, how do you tell a story to get your point across without boring your target audience to death? It's a skill that anyone can learn, but in my view, very few ever master. But why does the format of a story where events unfold one after the other have such a profound impact on our learning and our ability to sell products and services to a market? The simple answer is this. We are hardwired for stories. A story, if broken down into the simplest form, is a connection of cause and effect, and that is exactly how we think. We think in narrators all day long, no matter if it is about buying groceries, whether we think about work or our spouse at home, we make up these kind of short stories in our heads for every action and conversation. In this episode, I chat to Mike Sharman, the CEO of Retroviral Communications, about how entrepreneurs can tell better stories. But before we jump into the meat and potatoes, I need to share with you something called the hero's journey, which in this episode, Mike and I use as a methodology to translate my own journey in building Matt Brown Media using the Matt Brown Show into a simple, relatable, and compelling story. This is important for context as we move forward deeper into how to craft a great story for your business, its products, and its services. So here you go, an intro to the hero's journey. What do Harry Potter, Katniss Everdeen, and Frodo all have in common with the heroes of ancient myths? What if I told you they are all variants of the same hero? Do you believe that? Joseph Campbell did. He studied myths from all over the world and published a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, retelling dozens of stories and explaining how each represents the monomyth, or hero's journey. So... What is the hero's journey? Think of it as a cycle. The journey begins and ends in the hero's ordinary world, but the quest passes through an unfamiliar, special world. Along the way, there are some key events. Think about your favorite book or movie. Does it follow this pattern? Status quo, that's where we start. One o'clock, call to adventure. The hero receives a mysterious message, an invitation, a challenge. Two o'clock, assistance. The hero needs some help, probably from someone older, wiser. Three o'clock, departure. The hero crosses the threshold from his normal, safe home and enters the special world and adventure. We're not in Kansas anymore. Four o'clock, trials. Being a hero is hard work. Our hero solves a riddle, slays a monster, escapes from a trap. Five o'clock, approach. 
It's time to face the biggest ordeal, the hero's worst fear. Six o'clock, crisis. This is the hero's darkest hour. He faces death and possibly even dies, only to be reborn. Seven o'clock, treasure. As a result, the hero claims some treasure, special recognition, or power. Eight o'clock, result. This can vary between stories. Do the monsters bow down before the hero, or do they chase him as he flees from the special world? Nine o'clock, return. After all that adventure, the hero returns to his ordinary world. Ten o'clock, new life. This quest has changed the hero. He has outgrown his old life. Eleven o'clock, resolution. All the tangled plot lines get straightened out. Twelve o'clock, status quo, but upgraded to a new level. Nothing is quite the same once you're a hero. Many popular books and movies follow this ancient formula pretty closely, but let's see how well The Hunger Games fits the hero's journey template. When does Katniss Everdeen hear a call to adventure that gets the story moving? When her sister's name is called from the lottery? How about assistance? Is anyone going to help her on her adventure? Hey, Mitch. What about departure? Does she leave her ordinary world? She gets on a train to the capital. Okay, so you get the idea. What do you have in common with Harry Potter, Katniss Everdeen, and Frodo? Cool. So now you guys have some context, and this methodology will be referenced in the second half of the show. But let's jump straight into it. So without further ado, enter Mike Sharman. Hey guys, welcome back to the Matt Brown Show. I have with me at uh, his office, uh, his name is Mike Sharman. He's the founder and CEO of Retroviral Communications. So how's it, Mike? How's it, Matt? Thanks for having me. Why don't you share with us a bit of your backstory? What are the headlines you want our listeners to, to know? So I think the, the elevator pitch as such is really... Uh, what are you going to do when you finish high school? It's the burning question that a lot of people ask themselves or are asked by guidance teachers, etc. And uh, I wanted to be an actor. And then you obviously face the challenges of society and parents saying, nah, you don't want to be an actor. You're never going to have um, a bond or medical aid. So, you know, do something that's uh, realistic, like accounting or doctor. Um, and, and when you, do, you're, you don't have marks for a doctor, or if you haven't done biology, it's a little bit of a, a hampering. So. Eventually, I found this degree at the University of Johannesburg, which is called uh, marketing communication. So it is a mix of marketing and advertising subjects, as well as business, and then one or two other minors like politics and script writing. And once I did the degree, I ended up saying, cool, I've done my degree. I've got that piece of paper ticked off. I want to actually pursue this acting thing so that I don't have any regrets when I'm older. And then uh, I'd saved up money by telemarketing and doing promotions while I was at university. And uh, phoning people on weeknights, asking them if they wanted to sell their property, one of those annoying telemarketer types. And I found, uh, I found an acting school online and packed up all my things. My aunt and uncle lived in Northern California. Um, I flew in and then drove down to LA and I lived in the valley for about six months. So you literally went for the, for the dream, hey? Hollywood. That's it. So I, just, I thought I had to give it a, give it a crack. Um, just like I said, that there wouldn't be any any regrets of not having achieved it. And the course that I found was quite rad. It, it had elements of acting for commercials. It even had a stand-up comedy six-week uh, crash course. Make me laugh. <laughs> That's the joke that uh, that everyone asks the comedian. Hey, So for me, 
the great thing about looking at stand-up comedy, we read a book on that program or elements from a book called uh, The Comedy Bible, which is written by a lady called Judy Carter. And the fascinating thing about the, the Comedy Bible, it actually takes you through more of a construct of writing comedy, so observational stuff. And there are obviously people who are great at improv and one-liners and that kind of comedy, but the type of comedy that's always resonated with me has been observational humor. And uh, even today, I say that stand-up comedy and marketing are inextricably linked. They're cousins, um, because you'll get up on stage and you'll, you'll come up with a, a, a truth or a premise that people in the audience can nod along to and agree with. And that's what marketing is. Marketing is talking to people of different age groups, different backgrounds, different races, different creeds. And especially when you think about brands that are very uh, dry, such as financial services, or a lot of times it could be um, telecommunications brands, you're speaking to such diverse audiences, how do you get them to buy into that emotional connection with your brand? So going back to stand-up comedy, you're on stage, um, and I always used to talk about things like, you know, my name's Mike, and I'm from South Africa, that's why I have this strange accent. You know, accents are weird, because Czechs love accents. You know, you can be Shrek, but if you're packing an accent, you're getting some ass. Oh, that will do, don't care, that will do. You know, and from going from that to then talking about rap, for example, I love rap. You know, it's like one of those things, like I'm not very good at it. I can't freestyle or anything like that. But what's, what's scary about rappers is how rappers have those deep, husky rapper voices. So it's like, uh, 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 where would I be without you? I want to think about you. I know you're tired of being lonely. So baby girl, put it on me. You know, and like from, <laughs> from those kinds of instances, like regardless of whether you like rap or you like country or you like gospel or whatever that genre of music may be your preferred option, everyone has a view of what that looks like. We know that DMX has this deep husky rapper voice and you have the ability to tap into an audience that might not have the same interest as you but if you can deliver a premise and a truth, and that's the key to all good storytelling, whether you're telling stories through a print ad or through a radio show or a podcast or a, a commercial or a video series, like there's premises that we buy into that we are obsessed and fascinated by. It's like that hero's journey uh, as a premise, for example. So I guess the interesting thing that I see about entrepreneurs is that we all have a story to tell. And I was chatting with Brent Tolman uh, all about content marketing. And he was giving some examples around um, some good, okay, and really crap examples of how brands are telling their stories. So for instance, Polaroid were doing this uh, campaign and it was all around the lenses. And he was saying, well, no one gives a shit about the lenses if the glasses don't look cool. Do you know what I mean? That's why they buy lenses or sunglasses, not lenses, sunglasses. So newsflash to Polaroid, like get your story right. Why do so many brands get storytelling wrong? Brands get storytelling wrong because they are traditionally boxed and packaged in a very scientifically brand kind of way. So when I use an example of that, I look specifically at how brands have KPIs, they have key messages, they have a brand Bible, they have a CI. So everything has been designed very much like we've built it and we're going to go in a specific direction. And then when we think about um, social media and modern times and how human beings are communicating in their new digitally integrated world, things don't work like that. Things happen very much where even when we're watching TV series and shows on um, you know, Netflix or on DSTV or whatever that platform may be, now we're watching content that 
references our lives. If it's a politics show, they're talking about who the person is sitting in the White House. They're talking about who is representing people at like governmental, local level. And the way that content and storytelling has evolved, it very much references key elements of society so that we can feel more uh, ingrained in the story. And brands that have set out to follow a specific direction and they're talking to their purpose and their promise and their strategy and their vision and mission and all these other statements, like that's been set up to take you in a certain direction, but it doesn't take into consideration how we evolve and how we steer the rudder in new directions when we need to change our thinking. So do you, do you think that mission statements and brand houses and all these kind of things, because I'm actually um, helping an agency out on a pitch at the moment, um, and I was going through some of the documentation there, and it was I was reading it going, this is such bullshit. Like, the market doesn't care about what you put into your brand house. Because it's it's literally like enjoyment and taste this and and blah blah like it, so in other words you get functional benefits and emotional benefits and if you talk functional benefits to a market they eventually will stop paying attention do you know what I mean so I guess what I'm trying to get to is how important is emotion or the ability to draw out emotive feelings in someone that you're telling that story to when it comes to Uh, brand building or growing your business stay with us we'll be right back hey there i know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience you sometimes get stuck don't you well if you're like me being stuck sucks but what if you could access the minds of over 850 ceos who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second well the good news is you can literally do that today what my team have built is matt brown ai it is trained on all the interviews over 850 of them that i've done to date all my books all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the matt brown show and you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. I think emotion is the most important thing that you want to create for people. Like, you want to be loved. You want to be hated. You don't want to have ambivalence. And it's not just to create controversy for the sake of it in order to encourage d- debate and dialogue as with the, the recent Pepsi incident and, you know, the, the Jenner scenario. Uh, negative. Um, just for some of our listeners, you may not know, and I'm one of them. <laughs> what was the, the bulls up there? So Pepsi created this commercial where they felt like they had done all their research, they were very vocal about not using an agency and doing a lot of their own communications in-house. And they presented a commercial in the world that seemed to have taken trends that were topical amongst the millennial audience. So obviously millennials being the the buzzword in terms of target markets, they they were looking at tapping into things. What are are things that are happening on people's, uh, the tip of people's tongues in social and in the real world? Oh, there's politics and there's Black Lives Matter and there's a whole bunch of other very intense topics that are happening uh, at grassroots level for consumers. So they took a concept with, uh, I think, believe it was Kylie Jenner and she was walking through the streets and it was a utopian world, a mixture of races, backgrounds, creeds. And it was about a whole bunch of policemen being very um, positioned as almost right-wing beliefs. And she handed the one policeman a Coke, similar to... Um, 
uh, a piece of art or an actual protest that we saw uh, back in the 60s where a young lady gave a flower to a policeman for to put into his, his weapon. And handing over this Pepsi was supposed to represent the breakdown of barriers and communication and, you know, very joyous feelings that a target market is wanting to experience at this level. But the problem was because they hadn't tapped into the right kind of insights and they hadn't used the insights in a very natural and authentic way, they created quite, a, created quite an artificial message where it looked like they were cool to understand insights that were happening within their target market, but then the way that they packaged it and executed the storytelling came across very much as a fake brand effort. And it caught a lot of backlash, it caught a lot of heat, and eventually Pepsi pulled it. And it was just interesting to see because you're going to always have that debate whether a brand should have an agency, whether they should do communication in-house. And for Pepsi to have been so vocal about going down the in-house route and we know our brand better than anyone else can and we're going to cut costs and we're going to use our own internal resources, like they totally missed the mark. Generally, brands know their business better than anybody else at product or service level. And then obviously working with an agency or agencies helps them to craft that story and craft the way in which they position to the outside world. Um, and obviously in this age of disruption, there are cases where things work and things don't work. Uh, Uber also took a lot of um, backlash in terms of the redesign of their CI in the last few months, where they also poo-pooed the use of agency. We're going to do this ourselves. And there was a lot of mixed reaction and nothing as intense as this Pepsi example. But uh, it just shows that a lot of times like you do need to consult external sources to see like what is actually happening in the world. Are we out of touch or in touch? And uh, that's a huge challenge with your story. You can get your story very wrong if you're out of touch. Outsurance recently was in the poo as well with the, in terms of consumer backlash about an ad that they put out. Now, uh, full disclosure, I haven't seen the ad, but I've read about it. So I understand generally what the gist was. Now, for those of you who may not know what the deal was, uh, you're familiar with it, right? Yeah. You've seen it. Okay. So you probably best to, well, what was the ad about and why did it land up in shit? So the ad was for Father's Day, and from my perspective, obviously I don't have all the intel from behind the scenes. So from from me, I obviously saw the backlash when it was kicking off on social, and then I watched the video on Twitter, and it was very much uh, dads being ridiculous. So dads either trying to push two kids up and down a half pipe on two skateboards, you know, like something's going to end up going awry, like someone's going to get hurt, someone's going to cry, and it was dads doing their absolute worst at dadding and the problem with the story to me it seemed like they had done the outsurance thing and they produced a lot of their own content so they'd gone and they'd ripped a video from youtube which was clearly american individuals dads and their kids and everything and they'd clearly ripped that from a specific source and then they'd put the end board on it so Obviously, I don't know if they paid for the rights to that content or if they just found a general dadding video on YouTube and they decided to just strip opening and closing boards and put their own end board on. But the the problem with that content was the majority of the dudes and individuals within that video were white. So if you're talking to a South African audience, which is predominantly black, why would you put out a video that has no black characters? And it became like a challenge amongst people on Twitter to say, Oh, 28 seconds, I saw a black dad. And a lot of the comments that were seen online were, oh, is this because black parents or black fathers are absent? Is that why there are no black characters within this video utterance? And then it became a story more around those elements because utterance had taken a shortcut and it had failed to look at this critically and say, 
are we representative of the people that we're wanting to communicate with? Because it spiraled into a negative situation where you're happy to take the money for premiums from a black audience, but you're not happy to have us in your communication. And you can understand why that conversation occurred. And from my perspective, I always think it's important. Once again, this is another example of a team working in-house. How much um, guidance did they get from anybody externally? And a lot of the times, marketing people make these mistakes. They become very siloed. They become very insular in terms of this is the greatest piece of content. It's going to go viral. It's going to touch all the right notes. And even though they may have entered into it from a very innocent, naive space, it ends up creating the backlash because there are things that they hadn't thought about or they haven't realized that being in their insular view, it has led to an outcry for topics that you could not have even considered there to be problems um, in retrospect. Yeah, it's funny for me when I listen to you describe the, what happened there and, and the context around that and the, and the consequent fallout because it's when you start out with the storytelling. So let's say you want to do a brand story, or you want to sell a product or you want to create um, through marketing and storytelling some form of demand for what you're offering as a business. Um, what I find interesting about that story is like when you start out, well, we're just going to do a TV ad. Do you know what I mean? But and it's just in the digital world that we live in now, it's way more than just what you put out there because it's everything that happens afterwards. That's actually where your equity in the story starts to scale. So I'll give you an idea, an example rather. I interviewed a banking insider for one of South Africa's most innovative banks. And he's got some very strong views about the financial services industry and how they can't innovate, right? So I couldn't mention his name. I couldn't say who he worked for. I couldn't even take a photo of his face. Um, but I took one from behind, you know, from the behind on his back and whatever. So he was still doing the digital kung fu kind of meme thing. But I published that three months ago. Okay. Last week, Wednesday, someone picked it up. So Entrepreneur Mag published the, um, the content or the interview on their site. And, there's, and that's, they've got like another quarter of a million people that listen, well, that come to, to their websites and listen to the content. And then my Twitter started going nuts. And I was like, what the fuck's going on here? And I was like, I don't understand this. Like I published this thing like three months ago and now I'm getting tweets, 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 tweets coming through. And it was like, it was going off. And that underscores, it's not the, an outsurance scale example, but it underscores the role of storytelling and content, because when you put a story, it doesn't matter if it's a great story or if it's a bad story like outsurance, but when you put it out there, especially if it's content, it's got such a long lifespan. And because it's got such a long lifespan, it has the potential to always be picked up at some given point in time. And I guess when you look back at that whole value chain, it underscores the importance of getting your story right, right from the beginning. I totally agree. And I think not enough, not enough time is spent on developing your strategy. Like your strategy is so important because it talks to all of those things. Who is our customer? Who, what, what channels are they, are they engaged with? Like where do they, what do they open up in the morning? Are they opening Twitter? Are they an Instagram audience? Are they, are they on Facebook? So you, you understanding the, the who, what's the where's and the when's, and then you're executing with the how. But if you haven't stopped to ask all those questions, because if you think about it, now obviously it's easy to, to criticize or, or, or make you know, informed opinion after the fact. But if you, if you were to go back and say, does this piece of outsurance content actually have a strategy or does it have 
something that touches on all of these elements that are relevant to your target market, they might have stopped and said, actually, hang on, this isn't relevant to our target market. It's, it's too white, perhaps. And, and from there, you know, that potential situation could have been thwarted from, from the get-go. Um, you use a very interesting four-letter word earlier, and that's just. J-U-S to just. We throw it away all the time, but so many decisions are made on just. Just put a Father's Day piece together. Just put this tweet out. Beck, for example, with the, the female pens, there was another incident that picked up and exploded about a year and a half uh, ago. And, and for Women's Day in particular, when they said, think like a man, work like a man, all that kind of thing for a Women's Day post that even got picked up on Ellen. So these kinds of things happen in just, and we just do something and we just do that. And the repercussions of it are sometimes very crippling for a brand and can have a huge damage to that equity that you talk about. Yeah, I mean, one of the other things that um, I was reading about that outsurance debacle was the fact that it was how they responded to the backlash that got them into more shit, I think, than the ad did, if it was ever possible. Um, where I think it was the head of marketing or the CEO or someone who was on uh, a senior or in a, at a senior role within outsurance then blamed a junior for the fact that, you know what I mean? Like there's a very distinct difference between responsibility and accountability. You can't pass the buck. Exactly. I mean, you can't be a team on one instance where you're putting out content and then suddenly becomes a blame game and especially pointing fingers at juniors because regardless of the seniority of that person, there should be a team and there should be someone taking responsibility for that. The same thing is we live in such an authentic time. Like I can see straight through any brand BS that's, that's being put out there. And the fact that that marketing person went on air and on the record to position it like that, it really made the situation a hell of a lot worse, like you say. Speaking of authenticity, um, how do I, I think when I wrote this, basically I wrote this um, sort of a mini ebook, I guess. Uh, it was the first time I'd actually written about my story about podcasting and it was all around, I think the first one was around how I built Matt Brown Media using the Matt Brown Show and anyway, there's four pieces to it but the third piece was about authenticity and the search for it because I, when I look at the world and having these conversations with thought leaders such as yourself, I find that the world's very is very much dominated by things like fake news, uh, photoshopped photography, really crap content really really bad shit especially on Facebook um, and it, there's a distinct lack of authenticity everywhere I look but when I put when you put yourself in the shoes of a consumer or a market that you're trying to serve or a community that you're trying to create great things for like the entrepreneurship community authenticity uh, trust caring and the ability to translate that you have the, the resources and the capabilities to solve a particular problem for someone are very hard things to do in the current ecosystem that you find out there. So take Facebook, for instance. You've got 60 seconds, 30 seconds, potentially less to grab someone's attention. What can I possibly tell you in 30 seconds that's going to make you trust me? What can I possibly tell you in 60 seconds or in an ad or a thousand advertising messages that's going to make this conversation feel more real than it is? And I, and I guess what I'm trying to land here is this, if you want to be authentic, it's actually about the medium, I think, in many respects, and choosing your medium carefully, uh, strategically, going back to your point, and how you use that medium strategically to tell your story. So take this conversation, for instance, someone listening to the show right now, there's no other option but to be authentic between in this conversation right now on this podcast. But in a video, 
it's a different story. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I think it's like that editability. Like you have the ability to package things nowadays with all ranges of tools. And I think like using a real world example, that's where we are very fortunate to have a client like Rockamamas because that's how they've... Are they your clients? Yeah. So they've, that's how they've set their tone. The, the, the founder, Brian, I mean, he's in his late 40s. He has two young daughters that are in high school. And for him to, for him to look at this audience of, of young people and say like, you know, they really are getting quite a short deal in terms of where can they eat, where they're getting healthy food, freshly prepared, where they can see what the kitchen state is looking like, and just to have a generally good vibe. Um, so when he started doing the photographs for the product, um, he didn't use any deep etching techniques or food styling, you know, because food stylists will use like glycerin and they use all this artificial stuff to present the perfect burger so that on the billboard, it looks like the most perfect piece of food that's been like genetically modified in the world. And even now when we do photo shoots with Brian, the guys will prepare the food in the kitchen like they would for any customer. The, the food comes out of the kitchen onto a table that we've set up with lighting and the shot is taken. And he talks about perfect imperfection and like that tight but loose kind of scenario where you're not creating something that needs to be the perfect version of itself to appear on a screen, to appear on social, to appear potentially outdoor if it goes that route. Like this is showing you, sure, this is the kind of look and feel that your burger is going to have, yet every burger is created differently. No two burgers are created equally. And I think that's the, the great thing that that brand has managed to land is that in an age of everything trying to be perfect with filters and perfect statuses and I'm living my hashtag best life and hashtag blessed, like for a brand to come out and to be so blatantly obvious and honest about this is what we're preparing, sometimes it's going to look a little bit different, but we're not selling you a perfectly round bun and when you actually arrives, when it arrives on your plate that it actually looks like a car wreck. Yeah, I actually met Brian towards the end of last year and he was telling me a story about um, that exact principle about there's actually a lot of beauty in imperfection. And he was recounting to me the story of, you know, there's, uh, I don't know what you call them. Are they, are those, they're like very detailed handmade mats. What are those things? And they're bloody expensive. What are those things called? I know what you're saying. I can't But you know, okay, yeah. I'll put it up in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I, you guys listening will know better than me and Mike do right now. So you guys are the brains. <laughs> Congratulations. Congratulations. But, um, but he was telling me how they're Turkish. I think they're made in Turkey or Far East. Um, but when they make them, when you look at them and they hang them up on the wall and they're massive, they're like four, five, six meters by six meters long. And you pay up like upwards of a hundred grand for these things. But you know what drives the price up of those mats is the imperfection in the stitching. So what they actually do is when you look at it hanging up on your wall like a big mural, right? Um, you won't see any imperfections. But the, the connoisseur, the, the market that buys these very expensive items uh, actually looks for the imperfection. And every single one of those, um, those uh, mats are made with an imperfection. Because it's an insult to Allah, there's some religious um, uh, connotation to it, because nothing can be as perfect as God. And so it's interesting when you look at something as, well, I wouldn't say as, as simple, I think it's too reductionist, but as amazing as that is because of the time and the effort and the design and the authenticity that goes into it, that they still make it slightly imperfect in order to increase the value. 
And I think that is an interesting uh, principle which underlines the Rocker Mama's proposition, right? Which is there's no burgers will ever be, well, are the same, which talks to individualism and personalization, I guess, and relevance and all those kinds of other strategic labels that we, that we talk about. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's, this, there's a real trend in the world today about the we and the me. So there's like this constant challenge of fighting where what am I selfish about and what am I selfless about on a collective? And I think that's where a lot of things like you mentioned, personalization and all of these other elements come into it. Like, how can I be a mass brand or a mass product? And how can I talk to people on that personalized level? And it's a challenge for all brands to remain authentic, customized, personal as they grow. And, uh, you know, Rock Moments is one of those brands that's getting it right. Having opened their 50th local store recently, they still are leveraging the parts where people love coming in and choosing the ingredients that they get to have on their burger, writing an alias or their real name, depending on how they want to be positioned as the customer. The customer gets to own what the customer is in that environment. And I think that that's the challenge where your multinationals and your global brands, like they've gone to a space where they went very mass. And then how do they come back to the personal of me? And how do they talk to me, Mike, as an individual? And guys like Adidas are getting that so right because now they're telling these very cool stories. You've got uh, creatives from South Africa that are actually running the, the Adidas account in New York and they just won a Grand Prix um, at Cannes. So like South Africans are doing amazing things. We're telling amazing stories. And for too long, we've been a little bit shy of letting the world know our story you know like a lot of times uh, going back to that comedy analogy again good comedians write comedy in groups like i bounce things and test things off you so that you can say yeah i get in i buy into that premise i buy into that truth the same thing with good advertising and marketing teams they bounce things off so even in our agency where the more analytical people are involved in a brainstorm with more creative people sometimes the analytical people are a little bit more shy like oh i'm not creative you know it's the same like self-loathing thing like I'm, I'm not good at this but the analytical people identify the truths and the observations out there and then the creators work really well with them to collaborate to craft what that thing looks like and we need more discussions we need we need to challenge each other more i mean south africa has one of the most popular talk show hosts in the world on a global platform so we're doing such incredible things we need to tell the story about it and we need to be proud of that because everyone's got their own story Everyone's got their own narrative. And all we hear is these Silicon Valley stories. And I, I compare Silicon Valley to having a boob job. You know, it's, it's the same thing as like you put a veneer on something. You've said like all this amazing stuff is coming out of one part of the US. But for every Facebook story or for every Instagram story, there's a million, of other, million other brands failing behind the scenes. But the press focuses on the successes because failing isn't sexy. And we need to realize that there's a lot of beauty in failure to get to that desired endpoint. You and I spoke off air talking about how, you know, you haven't finished your journey yet. Your journey can never be finished because the research that I've been doing now uh, lately is that the average entrepreneur, the average entrepreneur, the average entrepreneur only really starts to see success in their late 40s to early 50s. I can't wait that long, dude. And that's the thing is like, you're going to continue to rush and you're going to continue to have successes and you're going to have continue to have failures. But that's the great thing is like, when the average person on the hamster wheel gets to the age where they're thinking about retirement, 
like Brian Maleffi age retirement, that's when real entrepreneurs are really starting to taste their first piece of success. And people like Zuckerberg, they're an anomaly. Not everyone is going to hit the jackpot with their first major thing. And that's the key takeout for a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs listening to this. And I talk to a lot of students and you know, I do some talks and mentor and that kind of thing. And everyone's in a rush. And it's the way that our world has been created. Our world has been created in 140 characters, in a status, in a 30-second video like you mentioned earlier. But how can we use those lessons in order to play the long game? It is. It's a, it's a marathon. It's like a Ryan Sands distance, ultra 100 miler. You know, it's not, a, it's not a sprint. It's not a Usain Bolt experience. And that's the important thing from an entrepreneurship point of view. The rest of the show is coming up shortly. But now a quick word from our sponsors. Are you a victim or an architect of the future? Do you have the right mindset and external strategy to thrive in our rapidly changing business world? In What's Your Moonshot, trend and innovation strategist John Sane explains how to ask the bigger, bolder, more courageous questions that will help you thrive rather than merely survive in our exponentially changing times. With a future-focused Victor mindset, Sane decodes megatrends that are reshaping human behavior and the way we do business, not to mention the way we live our lives. He then explains how to innovate your business with the ultimate aim of becoming the new type of billionaire, someone who positively affects the lives of a billion people. As the foundations of modern economies, transportation, communication, and energy start becoming free or virtually free, massive transformative ideas can now be driven by individual ambition and determination. No longer the sole domain of nations and global organizations, these pioneering game-changing missions or moonshots are defined by thinking big to drive and change the shape of the future. So the real question is, what's your moonshot? For more information, pick up What's Your Moonshot, the book, at any of your local favorite bookstores or visit johnsane.com for more info. Speaking of experiences and failing, one of the uh, um, in analogies that I like to use is that a 30-second video or an ad is like speed dating. So imagine if you're sitting, you're going to a speed dating event and you've got 30 seconds to, to tell someone who you are, what makes you unique and special and why they should like you and go on a second date, right? Super hard to do. High, high, high chances of failure generally never works out. Um, so then if you look at what we're doing, right, which is podcasting right now, it's like the day before you're getting married, right? Because you certainly know that uh, in the case of my listeners, that they trust me. They certainly think that I care about them. I'm giving them great information, I hope. <laughs> um, you better write in. <laughs> but, um, but they also think that you care about them enough to want to spend the rest of your life with them. And that's why they're prepared to do business with you. And I think that you've got a far less chance of failing if you do adopt a long-term uh, strategy and not trying to just get in it to piggyback off a cultural tweet that Zuma put out or a heavy hitting news journalist put out or something. Um, because I do think that, you know, if you adopt a long-term strategy in terms of your storytelling, I think there are, and this is where we're going to bring it down into the meat and potatoes now, but I do think there's almost like chapters to a book. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And there's acts as well. You know, if you look at the traditional construct of um, the hero's journey is that the hero will go on an adventure where he'll disappear and he'll come back. He'll go through arduous tasks and challenges. He'll potentially meet a mentor. He'll 
face up against a villain. And then from there, he learns through that journey in order to come out to the other side and to develop a solution that then bears fruit and successes to those around him. Like There's generally like the archetypal story process, whether it be Star Wars or any one of the, like Lord of the Rings or whatever these major blockbusters have been over the years. And it's very difficult in this day and age to develop those longer term relationships because we almost, we just want to test things out. We just want to, hey, make this viral video for me and we'll see how it works out. And then we might be able to do some work together again. And no along my journey, like we've had to really get stuck in and we've had to prove ourselves on certain instances. And that fortunately has led to longer term relationships. And of all the people that we've worked with, the best results have always come from really understanding and knowing your client on that very personal level, things that make them tick. And for you to have that brutal honesty when you get to situations like whether it be like on a burger shoot or whether it be in like an interview with a journalist, if you can really develop a relationship that is both professional yet communications wise intimate, like that's where you have the ability to really challenge each other for the best and the benefit of the brand or product. I agree. So let's bring it down to the, an entrepreneur, right? So um, I suppose, because you know what's fucking ironic here? I've actually got the Hero's Journey open app on my screen. No way. Yeah. Um, and the reason why it's up there was because I wanted to actually get into the specifics around how you craft a story. And to your point around novels or movies or any Netflix series that you watch, they all follow a very particular structure. And it's called The Hero's Journey. And it was validated in a book. I can't remember who, who, um, who wrote it. So I'll post it up in the show notes for you guys. But effectively what this guy did, he looked at all the current movies, the best-selling movies and the best-selling books at the time. And I think he looked at a thousand different uh, products. And for each one of those products, he started to draw connections between how the stories were crafted in, and in such a manner that it created resonance with the market. And if you're open to it, um, I think it would be cool to actually go through the actual hero's journey. Let's do it. Okay, cool. So it starts with the status quo. And I guess you're going to have to give some context here. It can't just be theory. So can we talk about Matt Brown Media? As, can you use me as a guinea pig? Sounds good. Yeah. yeah, let's do it. Cool. So so it starts with the status quo. So the status quo is really um, a, a term for how does the market or context currently exist today? What's the status quo? Okay, so I mean, we probably just need to take a few steps back then yeah. because if you think about how Matt Brown podcasting in particular, at that stage, what was the, what was the status quo in terms of media? So it was okay. TV, radio, print, maybe social media was starting to kick off, but podcasting was by no means a thing in, in South Africa. So your status quo challenge was to then come and say, well, I want to do things differently. I'm going to do this via audio, but not through traditional channels because there is an audience out there that I can tap into using social media. Do you know what the act, there were two things actually. One was the way that the media was portraying entrepreneurship. It was like, and especially if you read TechCrunch or any of these major news portals, I mean, there's literally uh, a section on their website called funding and you can find hundreds, if not thousands of news media releases about how some app got funded for $40 million or how, um, you know, uh, some delivery supply chain service that's pre-revenue got $110 million from fucking Disney Studios. Do you know what I mean? And I've, and I've started eight companies, six have failed. I had two small exits. 
Um, but I know what it's like to fail. And when you read that sort of stuff in the media, it's like, hang on, that's not cool. It's, the, uh, it's a great Silicon Valley lie, like I said. Yeah. It's all fake breasts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and for me, that was the status quo. But the other thing that I noticed was a article, and this was in 2013, that there were a billion Apple iTunes uh, podcast subscriptions. And I was like, holy shit, what if, so this was the departure point from the status quo, was what if I could help the community of entrepreneurs succeed by using a podcast? That was basically a summation of the status quo for, for me at the time. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I mean, even today, I mean, I was reading an article yesterday where it spoke about the podcasting industry being worth $225 million. So almost 3 billion rand. I mean, there's a great a host of opportunities within that. But once again, it's situations where how can you make the most of it? Because of those 8 billion subscriptions, it's not equating to um, even a dollar per subscription. So there's a lot of people that are just consuming content in this new age of technology that we have. Exactly. So the next thing after the status quo is call to adventure. So it's basically an invitation or challenge. So I suppose the challenge was the question, which was how can I basically make a difference to entrepreneurs and actually fix the status quo, which was the fact that there's a reality, the reality on the ground, and you'll know this um, as, as just as well as any other entrepreneur, is that it's bloody hard and you probably won't succeed. And so when you, there's, you know, that, that massive gaping chasm between what the media portrays uh, entrepreneurship as being, because they would imagine it being like an exponential curve like this, um, but it's not. Yeah, it's the, the good old stereotypical hockey stick. And it's that whole rock star mentality where entrepreneurs are the new rock stars. But you only get to see, you know, the anomalies of the Dave Grohls and uh, those kinds of characters, the Chris Martins on stage. Whereas what about the other guys that are struggling out in dive bars and playing like, on the streets of London? So once again, in terms of the call to adventure from a Matt Brown media perspective, it's like podcasting was a new adventure. It was a new media. It was a challenge where every man could become a broadcaster if he used the right technology and used the various distribution channels. And that was your adventure. Your adventure was, I'm going to go on podcasting and I'm going to teach brands to come on this journey with me and bring them, drag them along, kicking and screaming if I have to. But speaking to, this, uh, speaking to different entrepreneurs along your journey, you probably found out a lot of people are like, hey, that sounds like a cool adventure. I want to come. I want to be on your show. I want to be spoken to. I want to be interviewed. And that adventure in yourself created adventure and excitement for these other people, whether they be interviewees or brands alike. Well, I hope that to be the case, to be honest. I mean, I, I keep running into people like, man, that conference, I was, so that's a funny story I have to, I have to share, right? So, so remember right as you walked in you registered for that e for the event so it was the so matt and i went to a conference that was about <laughs> unicorns leapfrogs and uh gazelles. gazelles that's right so it was a whole industry insight and documentation from his last show in terms of where jason levine was at in terms of like mapping out the ecosystem from a vc and startup point of view so you know you get those silly name tags Yes. Okay. So someone really needs to disrupt that thing. But anyway, so he says, what's your name? And I was like, Matt. So he starts going through and he's like, M, 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 M. And he pulls out my name and he goes, he looks at this Matt Brown, Matt Brown show, CEO Digital Kung Fu. And he goes, dude, are you Matt Brown like from the podcast? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, dude, your podcast has changed my life. I've been listening to it for like over a year and blah, 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 blah. And so going back to that call to adventure, him consuming those 52 episodes, I'm not, his name's Antonio. I don't actually know if he's, if he is working for himself. It did seem quite young, 
but um, but I know that it's planted a seed for him because he's excited to take on that call to adventure. Yeah, and I think that it's small wins like that that inspire entrepreneurs. I mean, it doesn't matter if your product is geared for a million people. If one person comes to you and says, Matt, I loved your podcast. I've listened to that one episode. It makes you realize that there is someone listening to this and that you are having an impact of, of sorts. And it's like I say, like if I can convince one person every day for a year to start a business, that's 365 new businesses. You know, and if you can do that on an exponential basis, it won't be long before you can effectively encourage a million people to start a business. And if they each hire one person, there's 2 million jobs that previously didn't exist. I haven't thought about it like that, but yeah, the numbers do stack. But um, getting back into the next thing, which is assistance, what do you think that means? So it's help from someone older or wiser. So mentorship and coaching, a lot of that stuff is buzzwordy in the sense, oh, I need a coach. I've got a this is my coach. This is my mentor. Um, and I think that there are so many people within the ecosystem that are willing to help. Like entrepreneurs are some of the most helpful people that I've ever met. Pick up the phone or to connect because that's one of the key traits of being an entrepreneur is like you have a network and you have the ability to connect the dots. So you connect the dots in industry, you connect the dots in people and someone will come to me and say, hey Mike, listen, I'm looking for a really good video production company. And I'll say, cool, have you spoken to 10th Street Media? And from there, there's an email that goes and connection happens and then that potentially spirals into business. So mentorship is incredibly important whether you're asking people advice or meeting someone for coffee or just having a chin wag over a podcast. Like these are all things where Interestingly enough, if I'm speaking with you or you're trying to solve a problem, maybe there's a listener out there who's experiencing something similar. They can listen to this and say, oh, I've been wanting to figure this out. And now that's sparked a thought to help me change that. So mentorship, whether it lives in a formal mentor slash business coach structure, those things can be incredibly beneficial if you're taking the information, not necessarily as gospel, but inspiring you to connect the dots to help solve your problem. I must say, when I started out, I think I was on episode like 30 and I still hadn't even used the mic and I'd interviewed some like Elon Reyes, Mike Stockforth, Arthur Goldstuck, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that struck me is like, they still gave me their time. So they were all mentoring me in a way. Exactly. Uh, and they've brought you along this journey and those sorts of things, like you didn't have a mic, now you've got a mic and you've got a mic on a mic. It's like my <laughs> conception. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, but to, just to underscore the point, they, you know, I wouldn't have the show without the help of of the community. So the next thing is, uh, we, it's called departure. So the hero crosses the threshold and departs the normal safe place and enters the special world of podcasting in my case. <laughs> no, exactly. And I think that what you started with in the beginning, it wasn't, it wasn't calculated. Like there were a lot of things that you were doing where you're just going to dive and then hope for the best. And like you say, you've met with some of these individuals that had audiences and that they could give you advice, but they, they gave you their time, which was like their most valuable thing. And from there, it also gave you more confidence that you were onto something. And your departure point was like, I've chosen podcasting or broadcast as my USP, and I'm going to do it in my own way. And that's what you've continued to do. So that's where the departure is so important. It's like, if you've identified a gap in the market with whatever your entrepreneurial vision is, you know, we started out targeting online influencers and working with bloggers for brands. Like, no one was doing that stuff. And that proved time and time again how valuable it was to create earned media opportunities for brands. And we stuck to that. And over the years, we have obviously refined new ways of communicating and amplifying content. But that was our initial departure point when we started. Okay. Um, and then the next section is called trials. And this is when your story, it's around, um, 
effectively either the hero solves a riddle or goes through some form of hoop jumping, I guess, uh, or challenges in order to overcome, uh, you know, the, the kind of, I suppose, the point of departure. Yeah, and trials and tribulations are always the things that define what kind of entrepreneur you're going to be. Like, are you going to be happy with the lifestyle business? Or is this something that you really want to scale on a potential global level? And in your instance, there must have been times where you just wanted to pack in, switch off the mic. Yesterday. <laughs> and just say, I'm done with this. I'm going to go and just get a corporate job. And I think that a lot of times, if we take steps back again, um, one of the best pieces of advice I got when, when I started from a lady called Melissa Attry, she said to me, don't let fears of financial failure cripple you. And that is the one major thing is like 82% of businesses fail because of cash flow. And like, we know the problem. So why are we not solving that a lot more? It's because it gets hard and we've got bonds and we've got rent and we've got all these things to pay. So a lot of the time we are happy just to throw in the towel, towel and go work for someone. But if you're entrepreneurial, you're always going to struggle to fit into a corporate structure where there's a boss and there's middle management and then there's juniors. Like we are how we are because we want to do something different and we want to do it our way. Yeah. Um, and we're mostly unemployable. So, <laughs> by the way, lots of people keep telling me that on the show. Um, but uh, so then from the, or the trials, we go into the ordeal. And this is where the hero has to deal with his worst fear. What, what has been your worst fear um, as an entrepreneur? Or even now, like what keeps you up at night? I think that the one thing that really keeps you up at night is, um, is humans. So the one thing is letting down clients with your idea. Like we're obviously bigging ourselves up all the time. And we need to make sure that we're always overachieving expectations from clients. And the second thing is the humans that work with you and for you. And whether they be full-time staff or suppliers, you're always going to be challenged. Like what is our structure and our strategy to make sure that we're chasing debtors and we have the cash flow and we have the ability to make sure that everyone gets through to the end of the month without ever knowing that you as an entrepreneur panicked because how are you going to pay salaries this month? And fortunately, I mean, I've been very lucky in seven years. Um, there hasn't been one month where staff haven't received salaries. I mean, obviously there are times when you've had to pay VAT and you've gone through all those challenges and you go through hard times. But as long as your staff doesn't know that and they're not privy to that, I think you're doing a good job. Yeah, I agree. So that's, that kind of concludes with your deal. But then you move into this phase called crisis. And this is where the hero or business, in this case, or the product or market, pick your, pick your context. But it possibly faces death or even dies only then to be reborn. And you know what really irritates me about that particular phase is that it's so obvious in movies that you watch. It's like everything's great, ha-ha, funny, funny, and then like take wedding crashes, like my favorite movie of all time, right? It's when they have a fallout. So Vince Vaughn is still banging his chick, right? And, uh, <laughs> um, and, um, and who's the other guy? Do you know the movie? Uh, yeah, Owen Wilson, yeah. And then they, so then he's pissed off with Vince Vaughn and then he bails and then they don't talk to each other and he goes off and he, and he crashes a funeral. Funeral crashes. <laughs> so, so... So my point being, it's like that event is very obvious to me. And I never really understood it until I was aware of the hero's journey. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't understand. Like yeah, because you're living it. So it's so much, it's like with the same thing with relationships. Like your friend comes to you, oh, I'm struggling. I'm such a tough time in my relationship. And everyone can see that his relationship is about to bomb and it's in a diabolical stage. 
and these two human beings shouldn't be together anymore. And in, in this instance, and in my journey in particular, 2015 was one of those years. It was incredibly challenging. The market was a lot tougher than it had ever been. We'd always had a differentiator. And now we were starting to compete directly. Agencies were offering the service that made us unique. Like We didn't have that much of a differentiator anymore. So what we had to do is we had to probably roll up some sleeves. We had to take on some business that wasn't the sexiest stuff. We had to roll up sleeves and we had to do a lot of the hard work in the trenches because it, it was a very ugly year. Like Not as much creative stuff, not as much uh, differentiation in the world. Even advertising on a, uh, on a whole as an industry, both locally and internationally, there was nothing incredibly inspiring that was coming out from around the world. I mean, I could think of maybe three or four examples in that entire year where I was like blown away and saying, this is why I want to do what I do. And this is the stuff that makes me want to get out of bed in the morning. And 2015 was a rarity of those really good opportunities. And I found like from really digging my heels in and just you kind of lock your jaw, like you lock your jaw, like you've basically got a wide shut and you've got to go out there and really get through the gritty stuff because there are going to be years that, you know, whether it's voodoo or chi or whatever it may be, that they just, those years aren't geared for greatness. And having come out of like a dark tunnel to the start of 2016, now into 2017, like we've had a really good last 12 months on the businesses we've won, the campaigns we've executed, the stuff that we've done both locally and, and internationally. We've been very lucky to also have jobs that have been executed in London and South Bank, for example, with a thousand origami cranes and people walking by and an origami artist asking them, what are you saving for? And then having them, having that artist fold things out of euro notes like a house or a, an airplane or a car and then seeing the joy once again whether it's your podcast and people tweeting you or tuning in and saying that was a great show there was so much insight like seeing people's reaction to the stuff that we make because ultimately we're creators and storytellers are creators like they want the audience to get joy or get an excitement or a light in their eye that says i'm paying attention to every word or every piece of audio in this track and that's what makes you a real storyteller is like, how excited do you get about your story and about your journey and bringing other people into the journey? Stories are about inclusion. They're about bringing in audiences, it's about bringing in kids at your, at your feet to hang on every word that you're saying in this narrative, in this journey, in this fable, in this narrative, whatever it may be. Yeah, that's great. Um, so then it's an interesting segue into the next thing, which is the result, right? So, or the treasure. And this is where, for instance, now we've just had a really great year or, you know, the hero has finally overcome the ordeal and the crisis and the trials that he's had to endure. Um, and he's finally found or achieved the thing that he's meant to achieve. Um, and, but then he goes, the next thing is return. He goes back to the ordinary world. But when he gets back there, it's called the new life. And the quest has fundamentally changed the hero. And it's so interesting that point for me because I've changed. Because I think that if you make the things that you really care about and that your market cares about, it will change you in the process of creating that thing. Yeah, you'll have a part of your soul has been etched with the results of podcasting, for example. There's stuff within my soul that have been etched with storytelling or things that we've created for brands that we got super excited about because it went inverted commas viral globally you know and like those things when, when you see people pick up on that initial point to come back to the start of this conversation around the premise like you had a premise that you set out from the start hey we want to create 
US election themed hamburgers. We want to have the Donald, the Hillbill and the Joker. And when someone on BBC World is covering that story and it's going into like 150 countries around the world and people in, in Oman are tweeting in Arabic about being excited that this, this store is opening because the founder of this company said the US election is a joke. That's a powerful thing. The ability to uh, infect people's minds with a premise and a concept, like that's a really badass thing and a really powerful tool that when you get to that, you can st- sit back and be like, holy shit, like this has made a huge impact. Yeah. So the final, there's final two more things. One is tangled plot lines get working out, worked out rather. And then the hero returns to the status quo, but the status quo has effectively been upgraded. So, so that for me, I, I don't know, it's probably a shit concept, but it might be legacy or the fact that let's take your example around. Well, if you, if one person every day listens to the podcast, then that's 360 and they decide to start a business because of it. Then that's 365 businesses plus they employ 10 people that blah, blah, blah. You do the math. Do you know what I mean? Like if you, if you know what your the impact is where, where the media wasn't doing its job appropriately. So someone in this case, the, the story um, hero here would be me, I guess, unfortunately, fuck, I hate being in the limelight. Um, but I really do. I hate it. Um, and, but then when you, once you go and you jump through the hurdles, you achieve your journey and your results and all that kind of cool stuff. And you look back at it all to be able to then say, well, I created employment for X number of people. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that for me would be the status quo upgraded. Totally. And sometimes it isn't tangible. Like you can look back in a wave and we can see sure people in the industry are doing similar things or like they've started using tactics that we set out to achieve. And even in your position, like a lot more people are open to podcasts now. And whether that was a natural evolution or if you had a direct impact on that, you'll never know. But the fact is like podcasting is cool and it's not just a a global thing. It's a local thing. Like people are listening to a lot more podcasts. I'm listening to a lot more stuff at night and you know, I love Malcolm Gladwell's writing and to have been introduced to his podcast, for example, and to hear how he goes into different directions via voice. It's such a powerful tool. And voice is one of the greatest storytelling mechanisms of all time. If you go back to people having a discussion around a bra or those uh, stories that used to be on radio before you and I were even born. I mean, that was a thing that people used to gather around and, you know, gather around a, a radio at night to listen to the latest adventure. And this is where we are really fortunate is that you, are, uh, you have the ability to be the hero of your own story because of the technology and the media that we have the ability to own and not just consume. If you think about people like uh, Ricky Rick, for example, like he's created music and used an audience and a mechanism to spread his audio gospel on channels that didn't previously exist. Speaking of great writers like Malcolm Gladwell, you, sir, are also releasing a book. Uh, is it called? The Best Dick. The Best Dick. Okay, cool. Thank God you jumped in there because I was going to say something else completely different. Because you know, there, <laughs> there, there are a lot of dicks in business. I never wanted to be the biggest. I wanted to be the best dick. And for me, it's, I've been on this journey now for uh, seven years since I started Retroviral. And there's a lot of interesting points. I mean, some of them we've covered today Others include like things like cash flow or partners or starting businesses or having challenges and struggles. And for me, that's really, um, it was almost a little bit of a retrospective look back and say, what are key premises and observations of things that entrepreneurs will go through? And then 
how did I experience it in my own analogy or in my own story, having worked with different brands and corporates and individuals and entrepreneurs. And uh, yeah, effectively, I have these creative itches that need to be scratched every now and again. And this is one of them. I'm so glad that you're writing about what you're writing. Um, so I was saying before we went on air about um, having met with your publisher um, last week. Um, and I was, she was telling me, I said like, what's the actual book about? You know, cause you've only published the front cover, which is great marketing again, bit of a tease. But, um, but I think like business books have been done to death. Do you know what I mean? Like if you want to know strategy, there's a million books for that. If you want to know about talent acquisition, onboarding culture, like everything that can possibly be discussed about the business ecosystem has probably been discussed. And yes, the industry is changing and yes, there needs to be updates made, right? So there's always a space in that in, um, or an opportunity in that space. But what's very rarely spoken about is the individual. So for me, like that for me is interesting because what happens around people and business, yeah, okay, it's, it's somewhat interesting. But what's really interesting is what you think and what you've learned and like be having an open and honest and authentic account of your story as Mike Sharman, the founder and CEO of Retroviral and what you've learned over the last seven years and without addressing strategy, but addressing specific contextually relevant things that happened to you on that path so that you can then translate the lesson back to other people. And I think that's the, that's the true value of an entrepreneur's storytelling um, kind of play, I guess. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're going to write a book, like write it about that because this is, that's why the podcast I think works so well because it's completely authentic. Like the, I'm looking just back now in the last 59 minutes, 17 seconds, like I want to edit out about seven, eight, nine different things, but I'm not, I won't do that because that's not authentic. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's about doing what you're doing. And I think so I'm so, I'm so excited to, to actually get uh, an early bird copy of that book. <laughs> Thanks, man. No pressure. Yeah, but I think, you know, the, the best kind of mentorship and advice I've ever gotten is not from people to say, Mike, you're going to start a business. You have to write a business plan. And, you know, some of these things I talk about in the book, like you don't need a business plan. I never wrote a business plan. I just started and just again, just dive in, do stuff, speak to your network, engage with them, see where there's opportunities that exist. And for me, I always had the fallback of if this doesn't work out, I'll just go and get a job because I'm in a fortunate enough position to have both experience and the, and the education. And that's the thing is like seven years later, I haven't had to go and get a job. And I think that anybody can achieve success on a small, medium and large scale if they just stick to their guts and they have a basic idea of where they want to go. And then obviously taking on board the advice and stuff that's relevant and then discarding the stuff that isn't. I mean, my industry didn't exist when I was studying about it at university. So a lot of stuff, podcasting didn't exist for you when you were a young guy trying to figure out what you wanted to be when you were big. And I think those are the important lessons is that the world continues to change and be disrupted in so many different ways. Where is that disruption going to come from? Not all of us have to be creating sexy gadgets or iPhones as our journey. Some of us can make service industry sexy. And that's effectively what we found the thing that gets me excited and gets me pumped to wake up in the morning and come out guns blazing, kicking some ass. Cool, dude. Listen, that concludes your time in the hot seat. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege to, to get into the, the kind of nuts and bolts about storytelling. It's, uh, it's been really cool. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me, man. And Ciao. to the listeners, peace. <laughs> 
So for a while now, I've been wanting to get into the live podcast space. Now, you may be wondering what I mean by that. Well, what it means is that instead of me sitting with a guest and interviewing them alone, I actually interview a series of guests in front of a live audience. Now, how awesome would that be? Well, the good news is that on the 27th of July, that's a Thursday, between 5 p.m. and 7 p.m., the Matt Brown Show and Suits and Sneakers will be co-hosting an event called Cryptocurrencies, Blockchain, Bitcoin, and the Future of Money. It will also be my first live podcast where I'll be interviewing South Africa's premier experts on the subject in front of a live audience. No pressure then. Uh, So the event is also free. So come down and show your support. And all you need to do to book your free ticket is simply go to qkt.io forward slash crypto. That's qkt.io forward slash C-R-Y-P-T-O to book your ticket. So come down, guys, and show your support. It would also be great to finally meet many of you in person and for the very first time. So I'll see you all on the 27th. Hey, guys, thanks so much for listening to The Matt Brown Show. It's been an absolute privilege having you with us. And remember, if you'd like more information on Digital Kung Fu or our guests and the full show notes, all you have to do is head on over to digitalkungfu.co.za and you can catch us all over the social media graph. So till next time. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients clients haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an x.com.